the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Last week, we started a passage that instructs the Christian, the believer, on the importance of our inward focus toward other believers, our focus within the church to one another. We have come to this passage because in the context, Peter has been talking a lot about suffering, and indeed, the original recipients of this letter, First Peter, were suffering. They were being persecuted not just being called bad things, not just being pressured by society, but some of them were being physically abused. They were being beaten. And yet Peter tells them in honoring God to continue to submit to the proper authorities, whether that's within the marriage relationship, whether it's within the business relationship, whether it's towards the government. And understand all of those authorities in these people people's lives for a good majority of these Christians were pretty bad people, hence the persecution. And he says, as a comfort, as an encouragement, don't worry because the Lord is coming again soon. I believe that sort of comfort is uh, perhaps uh, more profound for people who are getting beaten for the faith and would cry out, make this stop, come again, Lord Jesus, have your way, be just. Remove me from this life, from this earth, so that I may be in your presence glorified forever. And then he goes in in this context to remind them, though Jesus is coming again soon, we don't know the time, but focus on one another, love one another, serve one another, be hospitable to one another. Yes, it is important to be salt and light. Yes, it is important to evangelize. Yes, it is important to minister to the world, but we must not forget that above all that, God has told us clearly in Scripture that our priority is Him. Our second priority is each other. And thirdly, the world. And so now we have started last week this passage in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're looking at five present-day priorities for the Christian, as I call them. These five present-day priorities priorities of the church, of the Christian, as we focus on one another. We saw last week that our motivation is the end of all things, including the second coming. This is what drives us to holy living. Holy living, we saw last week, through sound judgment and a sober spirit, clear thinking, self-controlled for the sake of biblical prayer. We saw also that we are to love each other fervently, not just love, but love passionately, love till it hurts, love when it is inconvenient, especially as it relates to the forgiveness and the covering of sin. And then he says that we are to be hospitable to one another, heartfelt hospitality, be hospitable without complaint, without grumbling, without gossiping, without saying, man, these guys need to leave. They're rude, whatever it may be. This morning, we come to our final present-day priority, which really encapsulates all of the first four. This is such an important passage. 
that I wanted to leave this last priority, if you will, just for a sermon, a morning of its own, because it is so important. Peter gives a lot more time and a lot more ink to this particular topic. He connects it to the glory and dominion and power of our God. And it is the essence of how a church, whether it's a local church and all those combined, the universal church, the global church, the capital C church can function. And I would submit to you this morning that neither our church nor any other church, conservative or liberal or whatever it may be, nor the complete church of all Christians in the world, none of them are living or functioning the way they are meant to be. None of them, including our church, are living out as a church to our maximum capacity. Why do I say that? Because of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, and everything we're going to look at this morning. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11? As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Although this is one point in a bigger outline, that I'm calling the indispensable function, which is service, as you now know. We will be finding this morning a smaller outline, which is four aspects of Christian service, four aspects of service to the church within the church. And if I may give you a little preview of what I'm going to say in a few minutes, you need to get out of the mindset of when I say in the church, I don't mean for us from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., in Burlingame High School's cafeteria. Serving the church means serving other Christians every day of the week. The first aspect of service is the promise, the promise of service. The beginning of verse 10, we find this phrase, I'll read it for you again, as each one has received a special gift. So first things first, every believer has been given a spiritual gift. Let me say that again. Every believer has been given a spiritual gift. And when we talk about a spiritual gift, we're referring to an ability used to serve, as the context makes clear. This is a gift from the Holy Spirit that is to be used for service. It is part and parcel of being a Christian. When you become a Christian, I like to say you get a package deal. You get a promise to be in heaven one day. You get the Holy Spirit. You get the forgiveness of sins. You get blessings. You get a church family, part of the body of Christ. With all of that, much like when your future employer offered you this, this package, right? Salary, raises, health care, all those things. It's the same thing with the Christian and very crucial and important in that package deal in part of your, as part of your salvation is some sort of spiritual gift a means of service, an ability to serve. It may be one specific, it may be several, it may be a combination of multiple gifts. But if you are a Christian, you are given a spiritual gift with which you are to serve. Now, there's different words 
in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, that can be translated as the word gift in English. However, Peter chooses one that is basically a derivative of the word grace. And he does this to emphasize the graciousness of the gift. The gift that you have was free. We did nothing to deserve them, much like our salvation. God does not owe us these gifts. He just gives them as he sees fit according to his good pleasure. So in the truest sense of the word, this is a gift. And these gifts referred to are non-material gifts. They are gifts that are to be, to be used for service and his glory. It's, 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 it's an ability that you have. But here's the point. Every Christian has the ability to serve in some way. Not at all in the same way, praise God for that, as we'll see why in a moment, but all in some way. And notice, right off the bat in verse 10, Peter doesn't say, okay, listen up, Christians. If you have received a spiritual gift, so those of you who have a spiritual gift, listen up. No, that's not what he says. He does not address his readers as to those individuals who have received a spiritual gift. Nope. He says, as each one has received a spiritual gift. So no matter how you translate this word as, this phrase is saying all believers have received a spiritual gift. That word as each one has received the gift can be because everyone has received the gift to the degree that everyone has received the gift, just as everyone has received a spiritual gift. And what's more, the certainty of this promise that you indeed as a believer have an ability to serve, this promise is also found in the verb that Peter uses, has received, as each one has received. I don't want to go into grammatical details, but suffice it to say, Peter writes in a tense in the Greek that indicates this is a done deal. Yeah, but how does Peter know uh, the ages of everyone, when they were saved? Because it's a done deal at the moment of salvation. You were given a spiritual gift. It happened once. It happened in the past. It is settled. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. You have it. You may not know what it is. You may not recognize it. You may not have practiced it ever since you were saved, but you have it. It is there. The way it manifests itself, of course, may adjust as you go from different churches, as our church changes, as you age and your, your physical abilities change or whatever it may be. Your financial situation changes, but you have a spiritual gift. Now you're saying, okay, I get it. Next point. Second aspect, please. You're beating a dead horse at this point. I'm doing that on purpose. Firstly, because God does with all the grammar that he points to, you have it, you have it, you have it, you have it. But I emphasize this because the foundation of service is the ability to serve. In order for any church and the church, universal church as a whole, to function the way God desires and God has intended Every Christian must serve, and that is something we have lost, especially in the Western church. You see, gifts are not limited to those in vocational ministry. In other words, people who do ministry for a living, as I do. They, gifts are not limited to elders in the church, or really any group in the church that is separate from the rest of the congregation. It is the entire congregation. And you gotta understand, 
that this isn't like God designed the church and then all these needs came. He said, okay, I, I need to start giving people gifts. No, from the beginning, God so designed the church that each and every Christian has a gift to be used for the church. Can I put it another way? The church cannot function to its maximum potential unless you are using your gift. And if I may exegete myself, I don't mean you, plural. I'm talking to every one of you as an individual. Everyone's ability to serve is unique to that person. Every Christian's giftedness is specific to him or her, just like their fingerprint. Yes, there are categories of gifts. There are specific gifts. But the way it is manifested in your life is unique to you. And in the same vein, because it is unique to you, God has put every Christian, of all the millions of Christians in the world, he has put every single one exactly where they are needed. In other words, this morning, if you are here, you are here for a reason. And believe me, it's not just to hear a sermon. It is to use your gift, whether during the fellowship hour after this or at some point during this coming week. God is like a good coach that not only fills every position of his team necessary for the team to play, but also specifically recruits individual players that meet the exact needs and weaknesses of his team. Sure, we need a backup quarterback, but we don't need five when we already have two of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. We're weak in our defense. We're weak in our, or whatever it is. I'm not, I don't know much about football, but you, you get it, right? He doesn't just say, well, we need these people, whoever will do, right? Who's in the draft? Let's just get them. No, he says, no, we need this. We, we need to step up our, our, our defense or whatever it is. And so they find not only the positions, but the specific people. And that's what exactly what God has done for you in placing you in this church. He doesn't just say, we need, we need warm bodies to fill the seats. He knows where you are gifted and he knows what we need here in Burlingame High School's cafeteria in Burlingame in the Bay Area based on the specific needs of our church, of our leadership, of our people, as well as the challenges of this area of living in California, let alone such a unique place as the San Francisco Bay Area. So yes, God has placed you in this church for a reason. And I, I look, I, I can't change your mind. I get it. I can't change your heart. But I think it's inevitable that as I say this, you're thinking, but not me. Can't apply to me. Yes, you. Yes, you. God has put you here for a reason. Do you not believe God is sovereign? And, and not that there's degrees of sovereignty. Sovereignty is sovereignty. But if you're questioning sovereignty, you at least agree that he's going to control what happens in the church, right? His body, his family, his people. He has brought you here for a reason. And you may come and look around and say that things are fine. I got my bulletin this morning. The chairs were set. I saw people praying in the corner. The sound is all set. Everything is running smoothly. 
The bagels and cream cheese are here, the most important part, right? Everything is set up. I, there's, it's okay if I don't get involved because everything is running smoothly already, but there's two problems with that. The first is what I've already mentioned. The idea of being a Christian and attending a church without serving the church is not church. Let me say it another way. The idea of being a Christian and attending a church without serving the church is not Christianity. It's not in the New Testament. You will not find spectator Christianity. You will not find you've done your job in a liberal area if you found a church that preaches the Bible is a solid conservative church, so just sit and listen. You won't find that. That's enough. And secondly, again, if you're here, God knows that we need you. I don't know how you, I need, I need you. I don't know how this church needs you specifically. God knows. That's why you're here. And like I said before, this is a gift because I know sometimes people can think, well, you know, I, I can't preach. I can't play music. I, I'm not good at administration. I'm not good at these big public things. But remember, this is a gift. Nobody can earn or generate these spiritual gifts. They can hone them. They can practice them. They can, they can, if, you know, if someone, for example, has been given the gift of preaching, he can go to seminary to become a better preacher, but I can't earn that gift. Each person has been given them, uh, given a gift by a sovereign God, whom we would all agree has a perfect plan. And that perfect plan involves us all doing our part. And maybe you don't serve because you feel inadequate, because you feel like you know your spiritual gift, but it's not big. It doesn't really influence a lot of people. But again, God gave you that gift. It's not a competition. He's the one who gave it to you. He's the one who gave the people with more public ministries that gift. And so whether it's preaching sermons or stacking chairs, God has given you that ability there's no competition. There's no uh, need or warrant or, or basis for me to look down on you because you have what is considered a lesser gift because we all got them from the same person. We didn't earn them. We didn't muscle it up. We, we were all inadequate. That's the beauty of it. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 15 through 25? Speaking of service, it's a, it's good to be reminded that as we understand service, that the family of God is just that. It's a family. And 1 Corinthians 12 gives us the picture of who we are as Christ's body. 1 Corinthians 12, 15 through 25. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. Let me stop there. It is not saying that anyone else has said that the foot is not part of the body. Notice who's saying, I am not the part of the body. The foot himself is saying that. The pastor didn't say that. The head didn't say that. The hand didn't say that. It's the foot feeling inadequate in and of himself. Verse 16. 
And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. In other words, it doesn't matter what you think of yourself. I'm just a visitor. I'm a new Christian. I'm whatever. You're part of the body. It doesn't matter what you say. It matters what is the reality. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on those, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. We're all one body. You are all necessary. You say, well, I'm just the pinky toe. We need the pinky toe. It's a nice toe. Gives us balance. Right? Every part of the body is necessary. They say, well, you know, there's always the person who likes to poke holes in analogies, right? It's like, hey, so what are you saying? Well, what do you say about the dis- disabled vets, right? Uh, for the sake of our country, they lost a leg. What kind of vet did you say? Disabled. He's not a fool. He knows that his body is not the way it was supposed to be. He knows that he is disabled. He's not, he's not running in the Olympics. He's running in the Special Olympics, right? He's run, running in the Disabled Olympics. He gets it. He knows that his body is not functioning. He knows that there are areas in his life, in normal living, in which he needs help, like climbing the stairs or getting into bed or even doing simple math problems if he's been hurt in the head and has a brain injury. But here's the thing about the church. The only way any church can be disabled in God's sovereignty is if the parts voluntarily check out. Because God has put us here, he has gifted us here, he has made us in such a way that we have every part of the body. We have everything we need to function as a church And the only way we are disabled is if someone chooses not to use their gifts. And so this passage in 1 Corinthians 12, I believe, serves as both an encouragement and as a warning. So on the one hand, it is an encouragement, which is this. You are part of the body. We need you. You have something to contribute, so please contribute. On the other hand, this passage in 1 Corinthians also serves as a warning, which is this. You are part of the body. We need you. You have something to contribute. So please 
contribute. It's not deja vu, it's the same thing. We are encouraged because we're put here and the body needs us, but it is a warning. The body needs you. And the warning falls to those who are not contributing. No matter how insignificant you may consider yourself, if you are a Christian and you are not using your gift for the body, I'll just put it bluntly, it hurts us. It hurt our feelings. It hurts our worship. It hurts our maximum capacity to glorify God as a local body and as the universal church. By the way, if you're confused by that, universal church just refers to all Christians everywhere around the world. Okay? Local church is an actual church like Grace Church of the Bay Area. It adversely affects us. It may help you because you are more comfortable. You can come and go. There's no accountability. Save more money. Save more time. But it hurts us. You get that with any member of the body. Everyone's ready to go to church. One kid doesn't want to go to church. It affects your worship. You get to church stressed. You miss some of the singing. It affects you. Your team at work. Everyone's working to hit the deadline. This guy's working on a little side project to get a promotion just for himself. Doesn't care about the team. Doesn't care about the project. That adversely affects you. Because now you're picking up the slack or you're going to miss the deadline altogether. He's sitting there getting a promotion, pleasing this guy, this team leader of something else, while you guys haven't slept in three days because you're pulling his slack. And, and that's, that's not even the majority of it. It isn't like, we're tired, you need to help out. You know how it affects us the most? We want you to worship. We want you to enjoy the blessings of service, the joy of being an obedient Christian so that we can come together and be like, man, wasn't that good? I don't know what you guys are talking about. How do you even convey to someone how much they've missed out when their reasoning for, for missing out in their minds was good? Well, I, I got to focus on unbelievers. I do outreach. Sure, that's important. The priority is the church. And people like to throw stones, right? The church needs to do this. The church needs to do this. church needs to do this. You know what? Maybe if we as a church got our act together and you actually helped us and did your part, we could do all those things that you accuse us of not doing. Don't you get it? Right? You don't have a guy saying, I don't need to see a doctor. He's bloody and his parts are falling off and he's crawling. No, I got to go do this. How about you get better and then you can do that properly? You have a gift, use it. It's a promise. It's a reality. Let me give you a second aspect of service, the privilege. The privilege. You have a gift, so use it. Verse 10, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Since we all have a spiritual gift, we need to be using it to serve one another within the church. 
This is a command, but also a privilege because we are ultimately serving God by serving his people. This is a privilege because we have been given this gift by that very same God to be used for him and his people. And this reminds us that since we have been entrusted with this ability, whatever it may be, we are stewards. And the idea of a steward, as Peter says, is that someone, usually a higher authority, has given you something to take care of, entrusted you with something, so you are to do so as a good steward. Now, the picture here for the original readers would have been that of a house steward. This was a house slave living in his master's home. And of all the slaves, it was a huge honor to be entrusted as a house slave and a steward because the steward was put in charge of all the food and all the clothing, which was to be distributed to the family, especially the children. Nothing's more important than the kids, right? Because they can't take care of themselves. And this was not a time that food was easy to obtain as it is today. Go to the grocery store once a week, stock up your fridge. There were no fridges. And food wasn't even easy to cook. You can't just light up the the gas burner. You didn't have a pantry filled with prepackaged snacks and microwavable meals. This was important to guard and distribute all of these things. Clothing did not last. You think your clothes have holes pretty quickly? Clothing back then simply didn't last, and it wasn't easy to obtain more clothing. There was no Macy's or Walmart or Target. You had to make this stuff. And so you have the steward. And if he was a good steward, he would distribute the food and the clothing properly so that it would last the way it was meant to last but also so that it would be providing the way it would be providing. If he was a bad steward, then the kids would go hungry. The clothes would fall apart without being replaced, or he'd give out the food too quickly and the clothing too quickly, and they would run out before there was opportunity or finances to get more. It's a very important job for the livelihood, the health and safety of the family. For believers, Peter says, we are to be good stewards of our spiritual gifts, to manage them wisely and obediently because the health, the well-being of the church relies on it. God provided, put you in charge, so you better do something about it. He says a good steward. That literally means fitting, proper. In light of the gracious gifts you've been giving, you given, you are to be a fitting steward. Not just those who have the gifts and use them once in a while, but those who use them faithfully, which also means frequently. Like that house slave, each Christian has been given control over a certain aspect of God's property, and he doesn't want you just to hold it for yourself or to use it for selfish means. The whole purpose of him giving it to you is so that you can use it and distribute it like that food and clothing. Peter says that we are stewards, what we are stewards of rather, is the manifold grace of God, the variegated, multifaceted, many-colored grace of God. In other words, when grace is manifested within the church, it comes in all shapes and sizes and gifts. So I got to ask you, 
And I know, I look, I, I am aware of what I'm doing. I know I've kind of lit a match under some of you and made you feel uncomfortable. I want to turn up the heat. What is your excuse not to serve? You think you're too new to the church? You're introverted? I don't know what to do. I don't know where the needs are. Maybe you just like to sit back and enjoy church. Maybe you're burnt out from looking for a solid church and finally you find one and you just want to enjoy the preaching and the donuts. And maybe it's you're just flat out lazy. Could you imagine this ancient couple returning from travels and they want to come home and open the door and the kids run to them, mommy and daddy, and hug them, but they can't because their ribs are sticking out because they're so malnourished and they're half naked and clothes have worn out. And they go to the steward and they say, we trusted you with our home and our belongings and our children. What happened? Uh, you asked me right before you left, and I've, I'm kind of new here. It's only been a few weeks that I've been part of this house, so didn't really want to do anything. Oh, you know, I'm an introvert, and I didn't really know how to call the kids in to eat food. I didn't know where to start. I didn't know what to do. What if he said, well, just kind of, you know, the kids, when you left, they were so happy and well-clothed, even complained they were too hot when they were running around. And so I just feel, felt like everything was already taken care of. The house was running smoothly. Oh, don't you know, I just, I just, I just came to finally enjoy a warm house and sit back and enjoy everything that's provided by this home. But I didn't want to get involved. Or what if he said, I'm too busy. I was too tired. I'm busy at work. Don't you understand how difficult life is here? For that slave, that wouldn't have just been a failure of duty. That would have been a crime. That person today would go to prison. It doesn't matter what your reason is. If you are a Christian, there is no excuse for a lack of service which is the stewardship of the grace of God. And I mentioned this earlier, understand that serving is not just on a Sunday morning. The service is not a grace church thing. It is a Christian thing. We are to serve each other all the time. Sure, it involves official Sunday ministries, but it also involves things that are outside of our church meetings. In fact, most of the service should happen then providing a meal, financial support, a word of encouragement, prayer for another, confronting sin. There's dozens upon dozens upon dozens of ways we are to serve. There are so many more services that are done outside of the public eye. And the reality is, church in America is hard. I know. I get it. I know how hard it was for many of you to find a solid church. This is why we started this church. I get it. I understand that when you got this job in California and came from another state or another country, you immediately thought the stereotype and reputation of California, I will not find 
a solid church. And so you looked and you looked and you found one, but you had to drive an hour, you found one or it was another language or whatever it may be. And you finally found here and you're exhausted and you're burnt out just from looking for a church. And you say, I just want to come and listen. And no matter how you excuse it, even if it is saying it's a pursuit of humility, if you are choosing not to serve, you are basically choosing to only be served. But by virtue of our election, we are servants. We are slaves of the almighty creator of the universe. We are servants of one another. And friends, do you understand the incredible privilege that is? We talk about grace and salvation, grace in, in providing, grace and sustaining our lives. God is gracious. God is grace, 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 grace. And he says, you, you get to dole out God's grace. You are stewards of his grace. It's like Oprah on that day, she'd give out free, free things, right? You get a grace and you get some grace. Well, why would you not want to do that? I mean, it'd be different if the boss came and said, oh, you know, I want you to pass out the the uh, office Christmas cards. You're like, oh, cool, look, I'm the special guy. But it's still, it's just your boss. God, the definition of grace, God whose grace is sustaining the universe so that nature exists and works and the world doesn't explode. God's grace, which sent his son to die for the sins of the world, says you get to take that grace, put it in your hands, and distribute it. Why would you not want to do that? Why would you want to not fulfill that privileged role of servant and slave and instead sit and say, I just want to be ministered to. I just want to be served. Because as one preacher has said, if God has called you to be a slave, never stoop to be a king. You are lowering yourself when you want to be the boss. You are crushing your own abilities when you want to be the king. There is no higher position, place, or calling than the very one in which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ took upon himself, and that is servant and slave. If God has called you to be a slave, never stoop to be a king. How do I do it? Well, that goes to our third aspect of service, the power. The power. The beginning of verse 11, Peter writes, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Now, there's many gifts, but Peter boils down the gifts into two general categories, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. The speaking gifts cover cover a wide range and can be uh, such such services as preaching and teaching, but it also can be evangelism or exhortation or edification. Now, this wouldn't in- include, when we're talking about a category of gift, this wouldn't include like casual conversations, but more of a formal public type of thing. And of course, we're talking about the use of speaking for God and his people, not just, you know, I, good at doing presentations for your work or whatever it may be. And when Peter says that we who speak are to speak the utterances of God, 
It simply means we're just, that well, what we say in our speaking ministries is to be biblical. Not opinion, not even the speaker's good ideas, but as if he was speaking the very words of God. Now, when you are a, a trained teacher or preacher and you have solid doctrine, that's a little easier. But when it comes to like evangelism or exhortation, we got to be really careful because it's easy to blend what Scripture says with kind of self-help stuff and pop psychology and all this kind of feel-good stuff versus just saying, hey, look, brother, I know it's hard, but you're in sin and you need to repent. And evangelism, getting into random debates about the existence of God and the validity of love and homosexuality, and we start taking political and social ideas instead of just saying, Put that to the side. First things first, you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Could we talk about that first, please? To put it simply, if you have a speaking gift, when you speak, you are to be faithful to God's Word, speaking with wisdom and holiness. And this takes effort. Okay, Just because you have a gift doesn't mean it's easy. This takes hard work. This takes knowing your Bible, studying, praying. And there are many who have the gift of preaching, so they they preach well, for example, but they don't put in the hard work and they don't make the effort, and this is part of the hard work, to put aside their lust for selfish gain or a big church so they don't speak in a way that accurately reflects the Word of God. They tell stories. They give their opinion. They, they stroke people on the back and make them feel good about their failures and their sin. They have the gift of speaking. They are incredibly gifted speakers, but they are abusing their gift. Now, the second group of gifts are the gifts of service. Uh, this is, there's so many. This could be administration. This could be prayer. This could be anything from contributing funds to, to physically caring for others. So basically, all of the non-speaking gifts, all of the non-verbal gifts, not that you don't use words to, to practice these gifts, you understand. And when you serve in this way, Peter says you are to do so with the strength which God supplies. Now, this means a reliance on God, but also a recognition of both the source and object of your service, which are both God. To serve by God's strength is nothing mystical. There's no special prayer and all of a sudden you're empowered by, by God. What does that mean then? First, it means understanding that it's God who has graciously given, it, given you your talents, your abilities, your time, and your resources. Second, serving by the strength God supplies means serving in a way that depends on the Spirit for both motivation and strength. Motivation, because frankly, We, in our sin, in our selfishness, would never serve others in this way. And secondly, by his strength, we are empowered by his word, his leading, his conviction through the word and our consciences, and by his strength. It is strength which God supplies. i got to tell you this. The word supplies, it actually originally referred to producing, like, like, like producing a, a chorus. So not like producing, like I, I produced this sermon, but like the production, like, like producing a movie. So the idea, you'd have this chorus, right? These group of singers, and there'd be this individual 
who who really was in charge of all the practices, booking the gigs, putting up the money for their travel, all of that that makes the chorus function as a public art form. And when it comes to service, when it says this is the strength that God supplies, he's the one who makes your service function. He's the one who puts up the money, who organizes the gigs, who who reserves the places, which is a stretch of an analogy for the people in your life that you are to serve. All of it is backed by God. He has ordered the job done. He pays the expenses, whether they are material, physical, or emotional. And by the way, you're saying, well, wait a minute there, that's the problem. Where does this money from God come from? How is he paying my expenses in service? He already has. It's the money in your bank account right now. It's the salary, the paycheck you're going to get at the end of next week. Do you not understand that everything you have, every blood cell, every finger, every eye, every cent, every second of time, every emotional and spiritual resource God has given you, not for selfish pleasures, but to glorify him. And one of the primary means to do that is to serve his people. Rely on your own strength and wisdom, and you will not only be ineffective, but you will ultimately burn out. One of the keys to making sure that you serve the right way is found in our final point, our fourth aspect of service. We've seen the promise, the privilege, the power, and now the purpose. The purpose. The end of verse 11, why do we do all these things? Why does he empower us? So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We'll just cover this quickly. The ultimate purpose of service and everything in the church is so that God will be glorified in all things. He is glorified uh, through Jesus Christ. This phrase may confuse you, but it's simply because Christ is the mediator of all things Christian. It is through Christ that we as a people, Christians, have come into existence, and it's through him that we can offer acceptable sacrifices. And in case you were curious why God deserves all the glory in our service and why that should be a motivation and purpose, it is because all glory and dominion, which means power, belongs to him, so much so that Peter cannot help but burst out in praise with that simple word, amen. This is where the fact that service is a privilege really comes to light. That we do it for him, the one who is worthy of all glory and dominion. You know, we're so quick to think, well, I want to serve, but what's in it for me? You ever done that? Look, I get it. We, we all do that, right? Even like you're, you're willing to serve. You're already, you're already planning to serve. You already said, I will be there. But you're kind of like, I don't want to do it. And then you realize, oh, there's something in it for me and your perspective still changes. You're still going to go anyways, but now you're more happy about it because you figured out the what's in it for me. And when we ask that, it's because we, are forgot, we have forgotten what an honor it is that we as sinners who are once objects of God's wrath and punishment, destined for hell, deserving of nothing but hell, now get to serve him. What's in it for me, we ask. It's like your boss pulling you aside and saying, hey, we didn't really tell anyone, 
but we and the, the, the board, we've had this competition and you have, because of your hard work of the thousands of employees in our multinational company, you are the only one who has won an all expense paid vacation to Hawaii. And it's going to be, we're still going to pay your salary for that week. Everything's paid for. Top of the line hotel, right? Trump Towers. No, I'm just kidding. All the food, most exclusive luau, all the gifts. Your room is going to be filled with everything you need, snorkels, kayaks, all that stuff. Take all of your, all of your family, all of your kids are paid for, and you look your boss dead in the eye and say, well, what's in it for me? The gift is the privilege. The service is what's in it for you. The trip is the gift. As with all things, God looks at the heart. I don't want you to just go start doing stuff because you feel convicted, but you don't have that heart of worship. That's what this last point is all about. We don't want to serve legalistically. We must have the right desire, willingness to serve, and that's why it's so important to really understand and worship God for who he is and let that be your purpose and motivation. Not this guy. That just shows you how you can serve, right? Well, let's admit it. Everyone, including that individual you're looking at in the mirror, it's pretty hard to serve because we're all selfish sinners. But God, not so. He needs to be your primary purpose, an object of service. So please. If you're going to serve, you must have a willingness to serve. You need to be willing to serve in order to serve. However, being willing to serve is not service. In just a couple weeks here, or about four weeks, Grace Church of the Bay Area is going to turn eight years old. I think it's fair that we're a little low today compared to our our previous weeks in attendance. I'm not interested in numbers, but it is a good gauge. Eight years ago, October 11th, 2011, our church started with four committed members, four and a half if you include my infant son. And now even some of you joined our church six months ago, and you're like, I think it's grown since then. And when we started the church eight years ago, one of the foundational pillars, in fact, this was my inaugural sermon, involved these, these four pillars, I believe there were. But one of them was biblical fellowship. And I call this biblical fellowship, not just fellowship. Because I believe in the church today, and especially saw this when I was in college ministry. We call it fellowship because a bunch of Christians are hanging out. That's not true fellowship. Technically, it is. The word fellowship means having something in common. For Christians, that's Christ. But when I say biblical fellowship, I mean when the verses talk about fellowship in the New Testament. That means worshiping together, having conversations, sure, about sports and, and complaining about your job, but also confronting sin, talking about Jesus talking about what you've learned in your quiet times, edifying one another. And you get that, right? You hang out with Christians all the time, but once in a while you'll leave that conversation, that that 
somehow delved into spiritual things, and you leave, you're like, wow, that was refreshing. It wasn't small group. It wasn't men's or women's group. We were just talking. You're like, man, that felt so good because that's biblical fellowship. People say, I'm going to fellowship with some Christians. What are you going to do? We're going to go watch a movie in a theater. You know, it's rude to talk during the movie. We're not going to talk. We're going to watch and share some popcorn fellowship. Eh, Kind of, not really. Fellowship is practicing the one another. So you know what that is? Any verse in the New Testament that's a command that says one another, love one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, serve one another. There's a couple dozen of those, mostly from Christ. And I truly believe, as a pastor, as someone who believes he knows the Bible correctly and my theology is right, I truly believe that one of the reasons God is blessing our church numerically and otherwise is because of our foundational pillar of biblical fellowship. The irony as we get bigger in numbers is that it becomes easier and easier to come and listen and then not get involved and not serve. You couldn't serve if you wanted to because you don't know anyone's name and they don't know yours. And in America, that's exactly how we want it. You ever wonder why these mega churches become even more mega? Because people like the anonymity. Because they're Christians and they know if they get involved, they will be held accountable for their sin and they will need to hold others accountable for their sin. It's easier to just come and listen, to not get involved. Early on when we were little, we, we had 20, 30 people. We had visitors come in. They would love it. They say, people are so welcoming. I like the sermon, all this stuff. But, pastor, I'm not coming back because I realize this is a church plant. And to be a part of a church plant, even if I'm not a member, if I'm just attending, is a lot of hard work. And frankly, with the new baby and the move, I just don't have time. So God bless you. I cannot tell you how much I respect those people because they understood. They got it. They understood everything that we've been talking about this morning, especially as it relates to a church of just a couple dozen people. We need to be servants. Will the church fall apart? Will the church disband? Will I be disqualified? Will people stop coming if we, not everyone is serving? No, 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 and no. It will still function. But for God's glory, which is manifested through the local church primarily on this earth, wouldn't you want us as a church or whatever church you may be attending if you're just visiting to be running running the race, not walking, not thinking we're running, but we're really limping. It it takes you. And, And if I can light that fire even a little higher, if you right now are especially convicted or couldn't care less, then that probably means this sermon is exactly for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege it is to serve. Lord, you are sovereign not only over 
our ministries, but over our work, our busy schedules, our sick children, our crying babies, all of that, Lord. You have put that in our lives because you know we can handle it and obey your command to serve. May we truly see it as a privilege, as an honor. Father, for those of those of us here who may not know what our spiritual gift is, may you make it clear to us. And I pray that we would serve, Lord. Maybe not on a Sunday morning, but just serving the church. May we be a church, Grace Church of the Bay Area, that is filled with a hundred or however many it is, ministers that are ministering. I pray that we would not be the kind of church where 10% of the people are doing 90% of the work, but 100% of the people would be doing 100% of the work. Lord, we know that as a people, we would be better for it, even our own walks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.